Radio is an internationally recognised expert on disaster resilience and recovery. She has been on the faculty of the Department of Architecture at UC Berkeley for 40 years and has served as chair. Her research revolves around seismic rehabilitation, post-disaster recovery and reconstruction, loss modelling and resilience-based design. Ed Blakely is a former Washington insider, an internationally recognised leader in urban development and planning, advisor and author. Good evening, Mary. It's morning for me and evening for you. But uh, you've been to Australia, you know the drill. Uh, It's great to have you, Mary, colleague from Berkeley, University of California at Berkeley. It's still there, I suppose. It is. I was actually visited it on Tuesday, fully vaccine passported to get in. (laughs) Is that right? That's good to hear. That's very good to hear. Let's see. It's got to be 20 years, right? That we've known one another, at least. More than that. I've been Berkeley 43. Okay. So it's probably 30 or so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and your husband, Mike Teets, we've known him since I came to Berkeley. That was, what, 40, 50 years ago? Golly. But one of the good things is we're still here. That is true. So now what have you been doing in the last few years? I know you've done a lot of work on earthquakes, but what have you been doing in the last several years? I Primarily, I have been taking the work that I started in the earthquake field and really broadened it in both internationally um, and in terms of looking at sort of policies for resilience. How do countries recover from disasters? How can they incorporate resilience into their policies? What steps do they need to take to do that? And I've been working in Chile, in Mexico, in New Zealand. um, And Australia. Australia, um, a number of countries. I mean, those are the ones I've been going back and back and back to regularly, but I have done a lot of work in Peru and other places as well. Um, And it really has been amazing to have that experience. I'm really sorry, the noise. I don't know how to turn this off. Um, All right, I've muted the ringer, sorry. Um, Well, so uh, you're working in the field of resilience and one of the things that gets short shrift, I think, and there was, issue of resilience, since it's been applied to earthquakes and fires and floods, which are very uh, persistent today. Uh, back in my old haunts, New Orleans, they just had three in a row. Um, but fortunately, we moved the levees. <laughs> so the city might come back. Um, what are the, let's start with the pandemic. The pandemic means we have to be resilient to something you can't see or touch or feel. Uh, What are your thoughts on how you think of resilience in those new fields? You you can be as wide as you want, earthquakes and so forth. How does resilience apply in this wider area? Well, if you think about COVID and pandemics in the broader area versus natural disasters, I think you know, the natural disasters tend to have an impact on a concentrated area. 
whereas the pandemics and other kinds of issues of that type are much more global in their impacts. They're much broader. You can't you can have an economic impact to one place that's very badly damaged in a natural disaster, but that economy can shift, whereas in the pandemic, it affects the economy across the board. But I think there are three things that they have in common. One is that they all have an uncertain timeline for recovery. Who knows how long it's gonna to take to recover. The second is that they both, they all have very long-term human impacts on, and, and disproportionately on the poor and low-income workers. Um, and third, there's always a new normal after. There, you don't go back to where you were. You're gonna go back and it's gonna be different. It's gonna be something else. So how do you think about that? Yeah, how do you think about that, Mary? Um, how do you, you, I think you plan for a kind of a future that you don't know about. Um, it's kind of, it's predictable surprises is what, you know, what you're planning for, right? You know, it's going to be a surprise. You know, it's going to be different, but at some level, there's some predictability. There's some pattern to it that we've experienced from other kinds of disasters. So we know, um, you know, we can think about what, we know there are going to be changes. How do we, we think about those? So I think this morning for me was an example of that. My gym has gone online. And uh, so is my uh, yoga. Yeah. But as soon as things open up, they'll have both. So if I can't exactly. come to the gym, they, they have a camera and it'll be online. I can yeah. shop at the grocery store online as well as go. Yeah, I think one of the big lessons from the COVID experience has been both the government and private sort of ability to pivot to remote work, to remote services, to, um, you know, it's a model for all kinds of resilient, other kinds of resilient operations. I think that's a very significant one. And I think that the kind of quickly putting in place policies like wage and rental assistance or stimulus packages for businesses or sort of housing homeless people in hotels that were otherwise empty. I think those kind of lessons from the pandemic will transfer forward. I think there were some negative impacts as well that we haven't quite sorted out yet, like the supply chain problems. Mm -hmm. I think those are gonna be around for a while and we really haven't worked those out. We really talk about low wage workers a lot but we haven't figured out what to do about it um, much except increase their wages. Uh, but we, you know, there's reforms that need to happen there. But I think those doing those things and thinking about those outcomes will get us on a more resilient footing in the future. One of the things that uh, surprises me is our profession, mutual profession, is planning. Uh, but our planning is static in a sense. You plan one block, the next block. How do we plan for an unknown future? Do we start planning every apartment building has to have, like in Tokyo, they have a safety center within a, every apartment building has a safety center. And down the basement, they have a lockdown, they have food, I think, for three weeks minimum in the basement of every apartment building. Are we going to come to that? In other words, making 
kind of mini resilience centers all over the city and having coordinators for that and the like? I think that's a piece of it. I mean, there is a certain amount of that going on in the U.S. with these um, these neighborhood programs where you really, they have a city worker whose job it is to help organize communities and they help you by making, you know, phone trees, getting to know people, figuring out how to do sort of things like that in it within a neighborhood. So I think that there is some of that kind of effort going on, but it's it's pretty localized. San Francisco is doing it very aggressively, other places more or less. But more important, I think, is the notion that there's sort of, there's both two parts to disaster recovery, and it really is the two parts of resilience as well, which is that you have to do some investment in physical stuff, right? You have to make the buildings stronger, the bridges not collapse, that kind of thing. But you also have to make plans that are long-term. How do you do things that are gonna support the normal everyday life and also be useful in disasters? And the example of that ranges from having um, infrastructure providers actually work together and talk to each other about interoperability. You know, how many times have we all complained about the fact that they've dug up the streets and put in new pipes and they've just repaved it and 20 minutes later, some other utility is digging up the street. Right? It happened what? last week in my neighborhood. <laughs> it happens, it's been happening for two years in my neighborhood and it's hopeless, it never ends. Um, but those kinds of things, it just takes coordination. These are quasi-public, quasi-private entities and they don't cooperate and they don't talk to each other. But we can have lifeline councils and other kinds of groups to get them to know each other, trust each other and do things. We can also push them very hard to make longer term plans. I mean, you know, water districts have maintenance plans, right? They have to do a certain amount. Well, while you're doing maintenance, why aren't you upgrading some parts of that system to be more either flood resistant, earthquake resistant, whatever the thing well, is in the course the, of Should the government are. come in here and add incentives like we did for earthquake in California? I had to do my house and the public utility gave me a loan uh, so that I could fortify my house and uh, and there were government centers that had food banks and stuff like that nearby. We're seeing that there's a great example in LA. I mean, when the city did the resilience by design plan three or four years ago, they said it's about buildings, it's about telecommunications and it's about water supply. Mm -hmm. And they basically gave money to LA Water and Power to both fix the three places where the big supply lines crossed the fault so they didn't lose them, but they also had them doing a 50-year plan which involved um, take using the routine maintenance to essentially over 50 years upgrade the water delivery system. And then next they had them look at 
the more broad thing about how do you grow and not be so reliant on one or two sources? So, mm-hmm. you know, how do you add desalinization, conservation, all these other kinds of, of tricks uh, to, to keep the supply up and, and more balanced while you have growth? And I think that that example is really important. And you know, a couple of years ago, I gave a talk about this and somebody from Southern California Edison said to me, gosh, we don't even talk to them. But now I've seen a seminar where the two of them are working together, the mm-hmm. LA Water and Power and Southern California Edison. So it takes some push by the government and some incentives, but you can get these things done. Well, what about the, the most visible thing, power lines? Why are power lines up when they are so dangerous? The street behind me has the power lines up. My street, they're underground. So something happens, they're dangerous to me because they go down, then mine are out. That's How exactly can we get right. power under the ground? Well, it's expensive. So some there's got to be some incentive or requirement. Like we're going to have $4 billion, trillion dollars. Yeah. But well, that's what we need to be spending money on is stuff like that. Um, uh, um, and that, you know, beyond just the fixing the broken bridges and everything else with infrastructure programs, if the US ever passes this um, infrastructure bill. Does Nancy have, live near you? Nancy lives just across town. It isn't very far. I saw her the other day. Actually, I mean, this is San Francisco. It's really small. People I don't realize. Einstein and Nancy Pelosi together, you know. Yeah. People don't realize uh, how small San Francisco it's a is. Tiny, we all know each other. Um, but so uh, uh, are people thinking about that kind of long-term solution? One of our colleagues, Michael Newman, is saying we should not have a grid. We should have many grids down to the size of, uh, let's say, San Francisco and San Mateo combined. That's enough grid. We could generate enough power from the bay and from water, from wind and so forth. We don't need a national grid, except for a backup. Yeah, I'm. well, that isn't my area. So technically, I'm not sure. I worry that we get into the problem that Japan has which is that, you know, there are two completely separate grids on either side of the country and they run on different voltages. So when they had the Fukushima disaster, they couldn't bring power over from the rest Uh of Japan. So you have to be very careful about those small systems and their interoperability with their neighbors. If there's some national standard, you could do it. But you kind of- Well, Texas wouldn't be in it. Texas would never (laughs) participate. (laughs) Um, so you you know that's a problem but you have to think about some of those unintended consequences what you're saying basically is we have to start thinking about what can go wrong as well as what is going right all the time now that means some staffing changing the way you staff your planning department your water department and so on having a staff of resilience officers and yeah, I don't know if I want them as resilience officers, but I sure would like a bunch of engineers in there thinking about some of these things. I, I mean, our technical specialists, for example, 20 years ago at UC Berkeley, 
we, I did a project called the Disaster Resistant University, which came, became a national model. FEMA adopted it, gave grants on it, spent lots of money. And the key in that program was not only did we need to identify our risks, and at that point in time, 20 years ago, we had a lot of buildings that were not safe in earthquakes. So yes. we had to improve and upgrade those buildings. But at the same time, we looked at what did we do as an institution? Well, we did teaching, we did research, we did public service, you know, we, there's a variety, we provide housing for students, all, we just provide food service, there's all these things that we do. Well, how are we doing in those areas? And we basically had a plan, plans in each of those areas. So every year, deans were required to produce a plan that said, well, how would they teach if they couldn't come into the building? Mm. That was pretty darn useful in the COVID situation. Mm. Um, we had a research recovery plan, which said, well, what happens if X percentage of our labs are down? Who can share space? Who can support each other? Could we share with Stanford? You know, oh my God, oh, oh that's going God. too far. <laughs> there was no single earthquake that was going to take both universities out at True. the same time. And it UCSF as well. And you see, but that point is that we made, and weirdly enough, you'll appreciate this as an academic, the researchers decided it was way too politically difficult to say those things out loud in a plan. So what they said was, we're going to decide who gets to decide. <laughs> And that alone probably would save months of arguing <laughs> in the course of an event. And they literally had lists of who they wanted back on campus and who they didn't want back on campus in the event. I know what list I would have been on. <laughs> it was a very interesting process, but the point was that there were all these administrative, what I called administrative things that you could do. Planning is cheap compared to retrofitting buildings or bridges, much cheaper. We would go around, we went to every single laboratory in the whole university campus with the environmental health and safety people in tow. And we were, they were doing their regular evaluations. And, and they said, well, actually, earthquake-wise, well, this one looks pretty good. Well, except for the fact that there's these two chemicals on the shelf that if they fall off and mix, we have a bomb. And it's like, couldn't we just get them to put them in two different places? Wouldn't that make a whole lot of sense to not store these two things next to each other? Sometimes there are these really simple things you can do to avert a problem. But if are you saying this has to be an institutional, utilities, cities, but also kind of at community level? But corporations too. I mean, why isn't Facebook doing this? I mean, Facebook has spent a small fortune on that donut of a building that is absolutely, you know, designed to be fully operational in the event of an earthquake. And my well, I thought question, that was an invented of a Trump attack. Yeah, but my point is, what if it happens at night and none of your workers can come to work the next day? Yeah, or do you yeah. expect them to never leave the building and not go home and check on their families? I mean, 
why aren't you thinking about what happens to your workforce as well as what happens to your building? Yes. And that's the point. That's the institutional part that we have to do. We have to get, as well as a university to think through all those things, we have to get institutions to think about, or corporations to think about it. So Berkeley, when Berkeley decided when it was building a new food service center that they had better make it an immediate occupancy building because they knew that they'd probably be feeding all of Berkeley and not just the university. Mm-hmm. So why shouldn't Facebook or Salesforce or, you know, those people could all do that. Mm. They could think about that role. So is that going on now? A little bit. You know, it needs to go on much faster. It needs now. to go on much faster and it needs to be part of policy. And this is where the planning, in my view, is just out of touch. Planners are not thinking about this. They're so narrowly focused on, you know, what they did 40 years ago, um, that they're not thinking about what is changing in the world. Um, I mean, yeah, permits are important and all of that, but really, can't we think about these large, you know, nobody's thinking much more broadly in planning about how we move forward. Now, now some things have been slightly enhanced by having people who represent that point of view. I know here in Sydney, we have resilience officers in every local council. Those resilience officers have gradually spread into other departments. Uh, The supply line issue. Big cities have big supply line issues. So they now have an officer for that. COVID started that. And um, they have one for uh, neighborhood safety now, who kind of community resilience officer, not community planning officer, to help the community survive during this lockdown where they have limited stores. How do we use the stores that are open more effectively? How do we create walking paths and so forth so people don't have to run into one another at times of day? Now, those things are temporary, but maybe they should be permanent. Yeah, I don't disagree. I, I agree with you completely. I think it's a really good idea. And I think we need to do more of that kind of thinking and planning in a, in a broader sense. Well, let, let's step this up a bit. When you lock down an economy, uh, there are all these effects you mentioned already with the lowest income, and people can't work from home and so on. Uh, a lot of the people can't work from home because they don't have a computer that's big enough at home. So the person you need the most, they used to call them secretaries, now called office manager, doesn't have a big computer at home. So the rest of the staff, he or she has to go into the office. Yeah. Uh, is there a way of having every company make a plan for any disaster, company disaster plan? that says certain people are designed to run the computers and certain people are designed to do this because we have it for fire. Yeah. 
it, no. it'd be a great thing. Why they don't do it, I don't know. I don't understand this at all. You, well, you, is it is it a matter of people like you writing papers on this and getting it pub published and things like this, and then you today running a series on resilience because. That's could has an effect. After Katrina, we had a lot of that. It did have an effect. Cities now all have, uh, for earthquakes and things like that, they all have a FEMA type person in their building. The government pays for them or for part of their salary. Yeah, for cities. But I think that the, the private institutions have not have adopted, not adopted that. Have not adopted this at all. They're, you know, it's very hard to get them. They for them. And I've learned this with the biotech industry. You know, their their idea of risk is bringing that product to market. Yeah. <laughs> Your Genentech or whoever. You know, it is not like if it's an earthquake, so what? They don't really care, right? Now they haven't, they do, they've cared about COVID. I, and I don't mean to belittle these corporations, but I think they're much, their notion of risk is just so much bigger and in a broader global sense than it is in the narrow or localized well, sense. But I am amazed that people, I mean, even I have friends who are partners in law firms and they're working off of some 10 year old computer that they've had at home because they know, never used to work at home before and didn't use laptops because they wanted it secure. You know, and so they're, I, I said, but their firms aren't buying them computers for their house. I can't believe it. For the partners, it seems remarkable to me. Well, I'm in a firm like that. <laughs> but we had an experience. Uh, the building shut down long before I came. And they had to move out of the buildings. And they had their first experience. So they were ready to uh, make my computer safe, the one I have. It died last week because I think we just put too much on it. Uh, but we did have a plan in place to move people out of the main office into our homes. Yeah. Uh, and I suspect, that, well, I know other law firms didn't because it's hard to reach them. That's very hard. And the courts were prepared because they're moving to courts online anyway. Uh, yeah. It's just too expensive to tie up the courts coming in for misdemeanors and stuff. Court online is big in Australia already. Oh, we do mediations great. online. Yeah, uh, that's great. So that keeps a, the court building free of that kind of stuff. Uh, but I must say, I don't enjoy doing trials online. Oh, gosh. Because yeah, we're a civil court and doing it online, you can't really see the building. Somebody's showing up a blurry plan and that kind of stuff. It's mm -hmm. not the same. Yeah. But at any rate, basically you're saying every business should have, as they have to have an OSHA plan, they should have a disaster plan. And But that, you know, what the, I think that people are resistant to the idea of a disaster plan because yes. it's so random and well it might not happen in the ceo's lifetime or you know tenure in the spot or whatever but if it is an operational if it's part of their operations planning their normal operations mm -hmm. planning to have 
checks and balance, you know, to have backup things of what, you know, this, what if X happens? What if, what if the power localized goes out? What if this happens? What if this happens? Yeah. Kind of like the airlines. Yeah, you have Just to, to do, do business. They have to have some backups. They have to have some backup systems. I just, I think it has to be built into their day-to-day -day rather than into their uh, a disaster plan, which they think of as something on the shelf that they only pull out when the disaster I got you. comes. I got you. It really has to be sort of an, it has to be part of normal operations and it has to make normal operations better, mm. right? It has to improve how you deliver services or how you treat employees or how you manage things. It has to have a day-to-day a -day kind of positive impact. And I think if you have those things, then it's much easier. To, the, the resilience is built in already. It's into your normal operations as opposed to the special thing that you do. That's a good idea. But there is role for specialists in the big banks, like the energy companies oh, and water companies. Of course, absolutely, absolutely. And then, then there's really important, you know, there's lessons to be learned for them from other places, other countries. I mean, you know, Italy has gotten really creative with all kinds of seismic bonuses tied to, if you do some energy efficient stuff in your house, you get a bonus to do the seismic upgrading at the same time. If you, you know, so they're, they're linking things together with things that people want and then linking something that they might not go after um, on their own to that thing and just making it easy. The other thing I suppose, our law firm was up and running so fast, I think we got more business in the startup. Yes. So that's a good example, you know, that's a good reason to be doing this, right? Is to be, to have that ability to pivot, recover. You know, it's almost as if you're saying, you know, this kind of planning makes you more nimble. Yeah. I mean, isn't that what the words they use in the business schools of, you know, of, of for, you know, for corporations to do yeah. well or to grow, they, they need to be more nimble. And I think this is a way of a way of thinking about it that builds some of this in. All right, let me bring it to another area of planning. That is, and I've been thinking about this a lot and people are acting on it. Uh, our cities are, are too heavily concentrated on central business districts. And what's happening here in Sydney, as you know, Parramatta is growing. All of a sudden Parramatta is a preferred location uh, some of these smaller districts where the government has services, hospitals, so forth, are now people are moving to those areas. They're not moving far away from the city, but they're moving to certain well-endowed districts mm -hmm. rather than being tied to the core. They can reach the core now because we're putting metros, as you know, uh, well within a few minutes, but they're not going to work there anymore. And some of our surrounding districts, and I'm giving a speech on this, I'm saying that should be the planning of the future, having kind of concentric circles rather than totally dependent on a central system. Does that well, make no, sense? Yeah, they mean that who people have talked about nodes in planning for a, for a long a time. For a long time. And I think we see it. 
we've seen it somewhat naturally with in the Bay Area, you know, you have the San Francisco downtown, but you have the Oakland downtown, you have Walnut Creek, you have Silicon Valley, you have some concentrations in San Rafael and Marin and Santa Rosa. I mean, all of all of these sort of mini centers have their own sort of support systems. I mean, they don't all have very good transit and they're not all very well connected. You know, some are better connected than others by the transit system. But it's important that those things are out there. And I didn't even mention San Jose, which is of course another one of the key ones. Um, but that I think is, is gonna be very valuable going forward. I think one of the things that the Japanese learned after um, the Fukushima event was to think more broadly about lessening concentrations that they just have too, they have such high concentrations of people in certain areas in Japan that then they're, if they have a disaster there, even with all their planning and stronger buildings and whatever, they're, they're gonna have a lot to deal with. So they're trying to think about how they can incorporate that more, yeah. slightly more dispersed. Deconcentrating, but not destroying. No, deconcentrated, but not destroyed. Agreed, keeping this, still keeping central cities, but just having options. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, in New Orleans, we had to do that. We had another central city uh, near Baton Rouge. We could move. We moved there for a hurricane that was coming. The whole city government moved to this other center on um, was the university, the the African American University in Baton Rouge, uh, Louisiana. Oh, I forget. Southern, Southern. It's called Southern University on the campus. There's a whole set of buildings, blockhouses with the city of New Orleans written on them. So we pulled up, the mayor's office was there, central command was there. Our communication center though was in Texas because you cannot communicate in those days uh, the way you do now. Surely we had uh, phones, uh, uh, iPhones and so forth, but they weren't the same as the powerful as they are now. So we had to have a communication center in Texas, in North Texas, way away from any disaster. And we could switch all of our telephones through that system. Sure. Uh, and I think the entire South is that way now because no city would stay in their office buildings in right. the event of a disaster. Yeah, the, the one, the problem with that is that the cities are better prepared than the rural areas. The, the yes. rural area, I mean, what we've seen that with Ida and the, yeah. the sort of destruction in the parishes, um, you know, where it's hard to reach them. It's, it's, they're, they're not urban. They're, they're, they're kind of, the news media isn't there. Nobody's paying a lot. And there's resistance to a lot of this too. And there's resistance all combined. But I mean, there's, there are, you know, there's small places that yeah. are mostly rural and they're under a thousand people. Well, and so they're, they're, you know, it's hard for state government to serve them. It's also, there, are, there isn't much in the way of local government. There's nobody running anything. You know, nobody knows how to apply for a FEMA grant and whatever that little, the little barrier islands, you know, that the bridges were lost on. Yeah. yeah. Um, forgotten the name of it, sorry. Um, yeah, but, but, you know, so they it, too, but I knew, it was on television, we all yeah. saw it. 
I've they, been there many also, times. But they don't have anybody to organize that for no. them. No. Um, no. Because it's all a part-time job for, for people there, the city government. So we haven't solved that that kind of rural disaster crisis. Maybe that's yet. regionalization, though. A Maybe. regional center that could service and, them and put absolutely. in the grants for them and that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. We were doing that in uh, small town agricultural grants when I was at UC Davis. Yeah. We served as a place to put in the grants for them because they couldn't do it themselves. Yeah. Yeah. At a grant center. Right. right. Uh, and all the mayors, everybody appreciated that. We wrote their grants when the Fed, and they paid us for it. Yeah, the, the Chilean government did that um, in the Chile earthquake because it was distributed, you know, over a 500-kilometer yeah, so region. And, and they were mostly, mostly small towns. There were only three or four cities of any significant size. The rest were rural towns, and they, you know, the mayors were not very powerful or had very much in the way of staff. They, but they used their regional offices of their equivalents of their agencies like HUD or Minview or you know, or housing and urban development kind of things. And they, they developed plans, they developed contracting procedures, and then they worked with the, each town to let them you know, implement it how they wanted to implement it. But somebody had to produce that. Yeah, um, that, makes sense. that basic set of documents because they didn't have the capacity in the towns. Uh, going back to a university's role here, clearly there's a research role, but can universities act as uh, the way we did at Davis? I suppose the government center is still there, working with these small towns, help them build their capacity that they don't have. Well, I think that universities have had a role like that. I mean, if you think about education departments in universities and how embedded they are in local schools yeah you know with student teachers and etc i mean and there's funding for that why wouldn't it make sense to do that i don't think we've done it as much as we could i think you might see it more in the land grant universities where there was a whole tradition yeah, of wisconsin and Agriculture extension, yeah, like Wisconsin yeah. and Michigan and those places. I, I think you, you see that tradition there um, more than you see it at the Ivies. Um, but there isn't any reason they can't. I mean, it's essential. Well, we're the land grant at Davis. Yeah, that's true. But I think, you know, what I'm saying is you don't see it at Princeton usually. No, um, no, no, um, no. But every but place has a state university. Even New Jersey has one. Yeah, but even if they, even if it's not, that there's no reason that any of those schools couldn't do it. All they have to do is set up a nonprofit. That's right. Um, that is a set of provides a, a service center. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There, there's no reason not to. I mean, Berkeley hired a permanent social worker to work with the people in People's Park. Mm -hmm. It's a staff job for the mm -hmm. university. Um, you know, so it's like, it's possible. They recognize it. It's in their backyard. It's something they have to deal with. So, you know, there, you could do more things like that. Yeah. Um, I, I think that they're, but they, they need to be more, you know, they're not faculty. You're going to need to hire people to, to do those things. Yeah. Um, um, this is the last thing. Uh, speaking of universities and research and all that, the pandemic must be a great opportunity 
for some good quality research, not just on the pandemic, you know, because we're doing good, good stuff on vaccines and so on, but on post-pandemic, how to organize, how to structure, how to deal with matters as you, you described. Is there any of that going on now? Are they thinking of grants for regional assessments and development of new strategies and the like? You know, the grant picture has been a bit grim, um, mostly because the National Science Foundation, uh, found, uh, yeah, the National NSF, Science Foundation. Yeah. NSF was kind of decimated in the last administration. So, you know, they need to sort of, they're, they're trying to like revamp. I mean, I participated in a, in a, in a meeting um, where I gave a talk of, you know, with NSF trying, helping them to figure out where do they need to be going and what do they need to be funding in the next 20 years. Um, so it's like, they're thinking about it, but they haven't really started yet but i but, but that's people, the direction they should go in right it's a direction that they're thinking about going the um, ec is the agency is thinking about i mean we had this meeting just two months ago mm -hmm. um and i haven't seen a report come out of it yet but there's supposed to be uh, I, I don't know maybe an internal report i'm not sure if i'll get a copy of it yeah. um but that's a that's an example i think you know, California is being pretty futuristic now that the recall election is done. They can think about, you know, some of the housing policy issues and how to make those more permanent. Um, they can think about some of the infrastructure issues. I, I think they're willing to spend some money on it. They just have to do it. <laughs> well, Mary, I think we're going to be talking about this more. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. It's a big topic. It is a big topic. But fortunately, we have a few listeners who want to hear about it, which is a pleasant surprise. Uh, we have about 5,000 people a week who tune in, uh, sometimes up to 7,000. Um, I have Peter Newman, you know, Peter Newman on. That'll draw a big crowd. Last week, Cisneros was on. We had 8,000 listeners to Cisneros across the globe. Wow. Uh, so, Very I mean, this is doing university outreach, I think. It is. Oh, it's great. You know, it's, it's very hard to, for those of us who sit in academia, you know, you, you wonder if anybody ever reads anything you write. <laughs> <laughs> and you kind of feel like, you know, I've been saying this for 20 years. Why isn't anybody listening? But it takes that. It takes a while. For, it takes a while, but also it takes ideas. multiple outlets. Yes. And, and it needs to be explained in, you know, ways that people can kind of wrap their minds around and say, hey, I can do this or I can do this. It's not as if it's just something that's so abstract and you just you disaster people go worry about this. I want everybody to be thinking about it. Well, they will, because I'll put this on LinkedIn on the disaster. You know, we, we have a, a disaster management group. You're probably in it. Uh, so we'll put this talk on LinkedIn as well as on the show and uh, I hope when I get there, there'll be a nice bottle of wine and some of you. Yeah, there will be. We'd love we, to see you we, guys again. We'd love to see you too. Whenever we can cross the pond, yes. um, 
it, in both directions. I mean, it's, you know, who it's knows always what good. it's going to be, but it's always good. Find more on Pacific Conversations at edtalks.com.au. These chats are going to come out every week up until the end of this year, so make sure to subscribe wherever you find the podcast so you don't miss a thing. And for weekly news and current affairs from Ed and myself, Sean Britton, check out our other podcast, US of Ed, wherever you find good podcasts.